Well, hello everybody and welcome to episode 20 of Yes of Yes. I am, as ever, Anthony Edmondson, known as VoiceOver Tony, with my very good friend... Paul Anthony Jones. Mr. Haggard Hawks mm-hmm. on the old Twitters. Mm-hmm. Season now, finale, Tony. Yeah. I was trying to give you a heads up, Paul, that I'm winning season three currently. Oh, are you? Uh, yeah, I've won two, we've drawn two, and you've won one. Oh, right, okay. So it's all on the line today. And I won season two as well. Not that I'm counting or anything. I literally, I'd like, I'd, I'm the least competitive person. <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like to think that these podcasts really show who cares most about yeah, podcasts. That's true. Yeah, we were literally just saying as well that you've had these facts prepped for like a week. Oh, at least three weeks I've had these ready. And for. I wrote these up in Starbucks an hour before I got here. Don't, so. <laughs> don't shatter the magic, Paul. <laughs> so I think before we go on, though, I think we should just quickly go over the rules again. Just yeah, we don't we often it. talk about the rules in case, yeah. yeah. We're getting better at introducing ourselves. Just. Just. just mm. We're just about there. But in terms of the rules, if you're first time listener to Yes or BS, both myself and Paul have three facts each. They could be true, they could be lies, and we have to guess if the other one is lying or not. Mm. And then points are awarded based on if we guess correctly. I think overall you've done much better than me. I think just generally in life, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I meant, yeah. <laughs> thanks, Paul. That's, thanks for joining us everybody that's all i needed to hear and gonna, wanted to hear he's gonna cut that line out and just put it play it on a loop <laughs> it's gonna go it's the start of every episode it's gonna get recap <laughs> well last week it was 5-1 to me yeah i wasn't was on my nearly, eight game last time nearly a whitewash yeah and i've got some good ones today i don't know where to start oh, though no what's what subject are you going with Take a wild guess. That'll be three history facts. <laughs> no, possibly. Are 66% of them about the Romans? No, 33% <laughs> are about the Romans. Right, okay. okay. I thought, you know what, to be fair, like you give us a lot of stick for doing the Romans. I, I've not done that many Roman facts. Um, I've only done about four or five proper... I think you've done more than that. Uh, you go back and check. Right. I'm going to have a fact in the next season about how many Roman facts you've had. <laughs> I think you'll find it's possibly four or five. <laughs> okay. And I think on that one, because I wasn't sure where to start, but I think I will start with Roman history. Okay. Fact. Right. I'm going to test the waters first. Well, you know that I don't know an awful lot about this. Is this why you kind of keep mining this seam? Yes. It's because you know I don't know anything about Roman exactly. history. Right, I wouldn't, okay. I, this is why I very rarely venture into literature or music. <laughs> Again, testing the waters. Mm-hmm. What would you say if I said there was a Roman emperor called Maximinus Thrax who was eight foot six tall? <laughs> Just your reaction. What, what's your first thought? I would say you were lying. <laughs> M- right. Maximinus. Max, well, that must be Maximinus. Maximinus Thrax. Yes. Thrax okay. meaning Thrace. So oh, what, right. So okay. what Thrace was kind of in modern day Bulgaria, bits of Turkey. It was kind of an area around there right. that the Romans called Thrace. Right. So Maximinus Thrace, basically. Came from, from there. Yes. Right. And he was eight foot six. Well, not quite eight foot six. That was, that's an Six exact... foot eight. That's more believable. <laughs> what historians believe, he had a form of acromegaly, more commonly known as gigantism. Yeah. An example of the modern era would be Andre the Giant, the wrestler. From mm-hmm. He was also in The Princess Bride as well. He was. Do you know that famous story of how much he drank one night? Andre the Giant? Yes. No, I don't. He apparently, in one night, he drank 119 350 milliliter bottles of beer, which is 41 litres or 72 pints in six hours. What? It's quite a famous story, that one. Do you not know that one? No, I've never heard that one No. Oh. 72 pints? Yeah. In or... six hours? See, now, was he actually a giant? Like, was he... he... I just thought he was big. No, he was seven foot two. 
So he's oh right, okay. He's not as yeah. gigantic as you might. He's not remember. sort of world's tallest man, no, Terry, no. but he was a massive. He was a bloke. big, big fella. right. Okay, and it's that sort of acromegaly that they think this Roman emperor had. He probably wasn't eight foot six. That was possibly an exaggeration from the Augustan history, which was written after his death. Right, and it was kind of it was a summary of emperors, and they put him at eight foot six, which is very unbelievable. Yes, got to remember at the time the average Roman legionary was only between five foot five and five foot seven. I was going to ask about this, what the average height was at the time, because it, it might be this sort of thing of like, if the average height is five foot five, then someone mm-hmm. who is just sort of tall by modern standards would seem immense. Exactly, which is why we don't think he was eight foot six, because yeah. that's just ridiculous. He may have been around the high six, maybe he, seven right. foot, but he, an historian, Herodian, was his contemporary who wrote about him, and he described him of frightening appearance and colossal size. And he had a prominent forehead... Uh, large nose, lantern jaw. So kind of typical of those symptoms mm. of um, overproduction of growth. Oh, animals. right. Okay. So regardless of his exact height, he was an absolute unit by right. all accounts of the day. Right. And he was in the army as well, actually, which is where oh, we're getting. Wow. We're getting the fact is we're going to get to some of his feats of strength. Right. So all of this is true. All of this is true. Right. So okay. Far. But what's interesting about uh, Maximinus, he was the first emperor who came from the common people. He wasn't a noble in any way. He, was ba- he used to be a shepherd in, oh, right. okay. in Bulgaria, in Thrace. Kind of local boy done good story. After he joined the army, he very quickly rose through the ranks. Um, various emperors took note of him. He was then given command of his own legion. And eventually the emperor Alexander Severus um, gave him the job of training troops in Germany. So he was kind of like oh. the, f- the frontline commander. Okay. risen dramatically through the ranks. Around about what time? Well, he was born in 173 AD and uh, joined the army in 190. And it was around the early 230s, so around 230, 231 AD, he was given right. command. So he's had a, quite a long career in the army. But he became emperor through force in the end, actually. It was oh, right, okay. When the emperor, um, Alexander Severus, was visiting his kind of garrison post on mm-hmm. kind of the frontier with Germany. His idea was he was going to pay off the German tribes and avoid war. But right. uh, Maximinus and the legionaries didn't like the sound of this. So they just killed the emperor. Right. And then the army decided to install Maximinus as the emperor just off their own bat. Right. This okay. is all true as well, by the way. Okay. This all right. Completely okay. true. Oh, wow. And so he's quite the sort of lethal. He is. He was notoriously brutal. He went on to almost bankrupt the empire. He kind this of... is what happens when you put the common man in charge. <laughs> <laughs> But this is where it gets to the yes or BS bit. Right, okay, so everything's been everything's true. Everything's been true up okay. to this point. We've had an absolute beast of a Roman emperor. Yeah. And of course, there's going to be some stories of his tales of great strength. What did he do right. with this great strength? Okay. These are all bundled into one fact. Right. Is the question, are these feats of strength true? Yes. Okay. So number one, once during battle, he strangled a horse. <laughs> number two... <laughs> He tore a man's arm out of a socket mm-hmm. in a rage mm-hmm. when he was given bad news. Uh, he carried two full-grown sheep on each shoulder during a 20-mile training march when he was in the army. Right. And during the siege of Edessa, he single-handedly loaded the rocks into the catapults. Each rock weighed about 350 pounds. <laughs> so he was, a ma- he was a big deadlift okay. fan. Right. So those four feats of strength were those documented as feats of strength that Maximinus Thrax <sighs> achieved? So they're not necessarily true, but have these been documented uh, as things he's sort done? Of yes. Attributed to him. Yes. Right. Okay. That sounds plausible. 
Strangling a horse, less so. <laughs> Um, but if he's massive, I mean, I, mm. I I genuinely can't remember the last time I saw a horse, and I'm trying to imagine how big its neck is. <laughs> how would you strangle a horse? You know, that's a question I've never asked, and I don't think I want to know the answer to. So we'll. It sounds like the kind of ludicrous thing that would be attributed to somebody like that. So yeah, we'll leave that one there. Mm-hmm. What was the second one? Uh, tore, tore a, a pl- man's arm out of his socket. That sounds plausible as well. Mm. Things happen like that, I guess, in mm. fights and brawls, especially if one of them is Andre the Giant sized. Mm. What was the third one? He carried some sheep. Uh, carried a full grown sheep on each shoulder <laughs> right. during a 20 mile training march. Okay, that's a useful skill. Are the sheep dead, presumably? <laughs> I don't know. It didn't <laughs> document it. They probably were, I imagine. They'd cause quite a fuss. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think sheep would take to being lifted into the air. It was actually part of one of the requirements to join the Roman army was they had to complete a 20-mile march in full kit. Oh, right, okay. This wasn't his, his uh, yeah, was, inauguration. Was, this was just something he did after. Oh, I was going to say, I, like, is two dead sheep part of the normal <laughs> kit of a Roman soldier? I You know, I've got absolutely no idea either how heavy a sheep would be. <laughs> I've got that for you. Right, how heavy is a sheep? They can be anywhere between 45 and 100 kilos. Really? Yeah, so like between 80, 90 pounds to like 180-ish pounds. What? A, uh, a sheep weighs 100 kilos? They can, anywhere between. That must be like a really big ram. Yeah, it's got to be. I don't like... think he was, I don't think he was picking up the 200 kilo sheep. The, the, the weight wasn't documented. I think it was just impressive enough. But that's enough. just what you found out is the, <laughs> is the weight of is this from personal experience? <laughs> Why was he carrying the sheep? Uh, just to show off. Like, oh, so, like, right. Okay. A... So it's like, oh, we have to go on this march. I, t- I bet you I can do this with yeah. the sheep on each shoulder. Yeah. Kind of like, oh, Achilles did all this stuff back in the day. Right. Look, look what I can do as well. So it had nothing to do with him being a shepherd. It was not like just a normal day for him. No, he was no, doing he it. Wasn't. He was doing it. Surely he would herd the sheep <laughs> rather, yeah, than, rather carry than carry them two himself at a time. two at a time. I need to tra- transport my sheep <laughs> 20 miles. I'll carry them two at a time. The dogs ran off, so I'll carry the sheep myself. Mm. Um, okay. I guess that could happen. And what was the fourth one? Um, loaded the catapult. Siege, yeah, he loaded the rocks under a catapult, and the rocks weighed about 350 pounds, or about 158 kilos. That sounds plausible as well, because in these sort of strongman competitions and things, they have those atlas stones, which are mm. of increasing size, and they have to pick them up and put them on top of a barrel or something. So 150 kilos sounds like a lot, though. But I, I guess it's doable. What's your <sighs> What's your gut? My gut is that it's all true, and yeah, I can imagine that they would record feats of strength. The question is whether, see, these are just sort of, I know they're unusual, but they're just sort of tame enough to make me mm. think that you could also have made these up and sort of tried to... Kind um, of outfox you? Yeah. Like, when we very first started playing this game, I think if you decided to make these up, it would have been like he carried <laughs> 10 women out of a burning building. And... <laughs> he, flew, he flew to the moon yeah, and back. He, you know, he wouldn't be strangling a horse. He would have like thrown a horse <laughs> off a cliff or so, like it would have been something ludicrous oh, now you're how getting I've adapted yeah now changed. you're getting quite wily in this game and you play it quite safe I think mm. so yeah I could see these also being made up but my gut is saying that they're probably true I have absolutely no point of reference with this whatsoever so I'm just gonna go with my gut and say it's true final answer yeah those are all BS oh, you know as soon as I said true I was like no nah, I bet he's played this same I bet these are all BS no, I just I've made all of that up I, oh. I did research the, the size of sheep though for a bit of colour <laughs> oh, so are any of his feats of strength recorded they are oh, I, was, I right. thought here's a little treat for you okay. so these are some of the ones he actually recorded 
He was said to eat 40 pounds of meat and 18 bottles of wine at each meal. Wow. They said he could crush rocks in his bare hands. Absolutely not. <laughs> yes, again, these are ridiculous. Unless it's like chalk. He once outpulled a team of horses. So like a chariot, a team uh, of horses and a chariot. See, no, <laughs> absolutely not. This is why I didn't go for the real yeah. ones. And this is the, the strangest one. He also knocked out a mule with one punch. What did the mule do? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. <laughs> That's none of that happened. <laughs> well, I'm not saying it did. This is just what people wrote down that he did. Absolutely none of that. Uh, the last one was apparently he could wear his wife's bracelet as a thumb ring. Oh, that, he had a wife. <laughs> There's hope Boy. out there for every man. <laughs> That's insane. What do you mean? That doesn't impress he's, women he, at the bar. Could wear on his thumb. Oh. Again, these are pro- these are all pro- most likely massive exaggerations. Yes, he sounds dreadful. So one nil to me, Paul, on the finale. <sighs> you've got it all to play for now. Okay. Let's see what you've got. All right, I'm going to come back kind of with a mix of uh, history and kind of English culture. Ooh, I guess okay. because um, we were driving about the country a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> coming back up from Yorkshire, mm-hmm. a friend of ours. Hello, Chris, if you're listening. <laughs> um, and we passed a sign for Mother Shipton's Cave. Can you remember? Ooh, I do. And, and I was, I, I wanted to pull over. Yes, because <laughs> did you not know what it was? I didn't know what it was. I just liked the idea of something called Mother Shipton's Cave. So <laughs> yeah. So I, told, I sort of point out to the listeners. We didn't pull over. No, we didn't. I wasn't allowed to go and see Mother Shipton's cave. Well, we needed to get home. We also know. needed to see Mother Shipton's cave. Uh, you, but, there, uh, there was three people in the car. Two of us had been to Mother Shipton's cave. I was outvoted anyway. This yeah. is so point. We'll not yeah. go over it. So you still never been? Still never been to Mother, no, old Mother Shipton's you cave. You should go. So um, before we kind of get into the fact that this is what inspired me to find out a little bit about Mother Shipton's cave, because I was quite surprised that you, you kind of knew nothing about it. So I thought, oh, I'll do a fact about it. And then this turned into a really interesting little diversions which we'll get to in a second but before that some facts about Mother Shipton's Cave Mm. if you don't know what we're talking about it is a cave in Naysborough in North Yorkshire which has very very mineral rich water so much more than a normal cave that builds normal stalactites and stalagmites this has a sort of because the waters are so mineral rich they can kind of transform things that they land on into stone they kind of petrify Mm. things and this has been known about for centuries and centuries. Here's a fact for you. It is the oldest entrance fee charging tourist attraction in England. Is it? Yeah. If you had to guess, what year do you think people have oh, been it's got charged th- Ooh, since? I was going to say Victorians, but I, I'm going to actually say earlier. This seems like a 1700s entrepreneurial wow. sort of thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, even earlier. Ooh, right. 1630 people have been charged to go and see uh, this happen in, in the cave. It's well worth going to see. Yeah. Oh, sorry. It is well worth going to see. It's a shame. Some of us didn't get a chance to see it. Such a soul point. <laughs> uh, yeah, but, and people who visit the cave, I th- I'm not sure you can do it anymore, but you used to be able to sort of leave something behind yourself and it would slowly get transformed into stone. I think they've stopped that largely because it's so popular. It would just be covered in things. Mm. Um, but you can buy teddy bears in the gift shop that have been transformed into stone. They hang these little three, four inch tall teddy bears up. Um, and yeah, you can buy those. Um, in 1923, Queen Mary, who would have been 
been the wife of George V. Ooh, I'm not good on me. 20s? 20th century kings. Yeah. Uh, well, Queen Mary left a shoe hanging up, and that's now on display in, in the sort of museum attached to this. Um, but yes, this is why this has become very famous. But do you know who Mother Shipton was? I don't. Ah. If only I'd been able to visit and uh, fight. <laughs> Sorry, that's the last one. This that's is going <laughs> to run and run until you go to Mother Shipton's cave. Um, yeah, now the legend is that in 1488, a baby was born in the cave. I don't know whether that means that her mother lived there or whether her mother had somehow ran away and mm. was in exile or something and, and the kid was born. Um, but there was a, a baby born and it was named Ursula Southiel or Sontheels. And she lived in the cave with her mother for a time, but then she was the baby was eventually adopted by uh, a local family. But in adulthood, she returned to the cave. She felt that she needed to live there because presumably her mother had. And she kind of got a local reputation as being a bit of a soothsayer and a fortune teller and... Um, a bit of a sort of unusual character who lives out in the woods, basically. Mm. And in 1641, a book of these prophecies was released. And this kind of established her as sort of a very widespread legend. A lot of the prophecies apparently um, turned out to come true. She supposedly predicted the Great Fire of London in 1666. Um, she supposedly predicted the defeat of the Spanish Armada. And supposedly, this is an unusual one, she supposedly predicted the invention of iron ships. Um, yeah, and we only kind of really know about her because a later edition of these prophecies had her sort of life story attached to it. How much of her life story is genuine, we kind of don't really know, but uh, it's been enough to sort of establish this legend. So I was thinking, you know, I'll, I'll do a little fact about this until I started reading up on why it became a tourist attraction in the first place. Mm -hmm. So um, the cave itself was on land that was owned by Sir Henry Slingsby. Um, and he was a very famous kind of landowner. He was also an MP for a time. And there's uh, still a walkway around the cave and around the town of Knaresborough, which is called Sir Henry Slingsby's Long Walk, apparently. And it's supposed to be absolutely beautiful. So oh, shout out nice. to anyone who's ever done that. Another, I haven't... another thing I missed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. <laughs> we'll go to Mother Shipton's cave yeah. one day. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Uh, Sir Henry Slingsby um, was the landowner and presumably it was under his sort of tenure of Knaresborough Castle, which is where he lived, that th this was opened up as a tourist attraction. Uh, Sir Henry Slingsby, though, was eventually executed under the Cromwellian regime. He was a, a proud royalist um, and he was arrested in Hull and eventually executed in 1658, in June 1658. But we're not talking about Henry Slingsby. Ooh. We're talking about his wife, Elizabetha. Or Elizabetta. Okay. Okay. And this is the yes or BS fact. Mm. She was the one who we think kind of oversaw this being opened as a tourist attraction mm -hmm. because her husband was away. Uh, he was a military man as well as being an MP. So he's away in Parliament all the time. He was away fighting various battles. So she's the one that's sort of credited with setting this up as a tourist attraction. And she was also the first recorded woman in English history, uh, found guilty and sentenced to death for conspiracy or for spying. Really? So this is the yes or BS oh, fact. Oh, got right. Okay. So from so, now on. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, does this woman exist? exist? Okay. So Elizabetha, the only kind of thing we really know about is that she was born in Spain at some point and she came over and married Sir Henry in 1619. So this is about a decade before this was opened up to the public. So by this point, Sir Henry's kind of in charge of a lot of the land in North Yorkshire. She's kind of sat at home in Nesbrook castle kind of going 
Well, marrying an MP's got its drawbacks. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we think that she kind of opened this up partly to fund the kind of military ventures that her husband was doing. Plus, she was a, a royalist sympathizer as well, like her husband. So we think it was maybe sort of slightly surreptitious uh, funding of the mm, royalist okay. regime. But not long after Henry was killed in June 1658, in August 1658, Elizabetha fled to Hull. We think... Which <laughs> um, is where her husband was found and no, killed. Uh, we, well, we think that she was using it as a port to get back to Spain ah. because because her husband had been a royalist sympathiser. Mm. You know, Cromwell was still in charge of everything. Pressure around that, that time was kind of starting to heat up. And if you were known as a royalist sympathiser, then, you know, people are going to be a bit suspicious of you. Mm. Plus, at the time, England was embroiled in the War of Portuguese Restoration uh, against Spain. And so because she was known locally to be so from Spanish Spain. Spanish royalist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's like, so it's oh, like you know what? Temperature's getting a little bit hot <laughs> here in Mother Shipley's I've got to get out of here. I've got to get back to the, the homeland. Mm-hmm. So she flees to Hull, we think, presumably to try and escape to the continent. For some reason, she's arrested. There are lots of theories about why she was arrested. Her husband uh, was arrested in Hull. Uh, Wait, well, he was put in prison. And then he tried to bribe the roundhead anti-royalist prison guard <laughs> By promising him all kinds of things from... Ooh, it's a tough sell, try to bribe a Puritan. Yeah, exactly. Try to uh, bribe him with lots and lots of pro-royalist things, like mm. we'll put him in charge of this, that and the other. This was reported to the, the local magistrate, presumably, and he was executed on that. Uh, so we don't kind of know why his wife was arrested, but she was arrested in Hull. She was taken to York to be put on trial. And all kinds of sort of hearsay was thrown at her, as, as well as the fact that she she was presumed to be a witch because she ha- was yeah, involved with this. Very typical 1600s. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because she was involved with the cave, uh, accusations of witchcraft came with it, accusations of piracy. Gee, not quite where'd sure. Where'd get that from? Not quite sure. Um, but the big thing that really hammered home this was that she was accused of conspiracy. And there's lots and lots and lots of stories about what she was involved in. There's one theory that there's a wishing well in the cave. And there's a theory that she used to stand behind that. Mm. And if anyone Cromwellian came in and sort of <laughs> said, you know, I wish all the royalists would die, she would you know, send a signal to mercenary troops that she had in under her employ. And whoever they were, when they were exiting the cave, would would be set upon. Right. I was all ready to believe you up until that point. Oh, th- no, this is probably completely <laughs> oh, right. This is just one of the things oh, that was gotcha. sort of thrown at her. Um, there was also an idea that she'd hosted a big party at the castle for a load of royalist sympathisers. But the key was that she'd, a week, a week earlier, had held a massive banquet for Roundhead supporters. Mm. And it sort of said, my husband got it wrong. His death has completely changed my mind. We're not royalist anymore. Come and celebrate at the castle. Tell me all of your military secrets. Kind of infiltrated it oh. all, and then a week later held a, exactly the same party, basically for all the royalists, and sort of gave out all of the secrets that she learned the week before. There is absolutely no record that that party happened mm. at Knaresborough Castle. Maybe it did, but these are all of the sort of long list of ludicrous things that was thrown at her. Of course, she was found guilty. She was found guilty of conspiracy, basically spying, and was sentenced to be hanged at the gallows in York. What happened to her, we don't really know. She died really shortly after in prison. So she Mm. wasn't actually executed. So she doesn't get that horrible tick saying that you were the first woman (laughs) executed for conspiracy. But she was the first woman sort of found guilty and Mm. sentenced to death for conspiracy in English history. Odd little side fact, she died on the 2nd of September, 1658. Cromwell, Oliver Cromwell, died the 3rd of September, died the following day. So there's a funny little sort of side point to that. Vengeful ghost on the way to London. (laughs) Straight down. (laughs) Straight down. Straight down the M1. Right. (laughs) Right, Cromwell, I'm having you. Yeah. 
So this is the story of um, Elizabetha Slingsby, as was, uh, the wife of Sir Henry Slingsby, who was put in charge of Mother Shipton's cave and then on trumped up charges of conspiracy after her husband's death became the first woman in English history sentenced to death for spying. Right. I am exactly 50-50 on this now because... Is that not the whole point of this clip? (laughs) (laughs) Because you may well have just got Mother Shipton's Cave because I wanted to go there and you wouldn't let us. (laughs) (laughs) We did have somewhere to be other than than stopping and looking around Mother Shipton's Cave. That's where we had to be. Just go on your own. (laughs) (laughs) So half of me thinks that you've just cobbled together this fact around the fact that we saw Mother Shipton's Cave sign a few weeks ago. Okay. But... As, as, as soon as I saw that sign and I found out that you'd not gone, I knew I was going to do something about Mother Shipton's case. And I foolishly didn't do any research on the back of it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, and, but that story was so detailed and it, ha- it had a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of me thinks that you couldn't think up that much historical detail yourself. <laughs> That you wouldn't have the context for the dates, that you would have had to do far too much work. I've already said on this podcast that I know absolutely nothing about the Cromwell period of history. <laughs> so if this is a lie, you'd have had to have done like proper backup research for the dates and the times and the people. Mm-hmm. Just a quick recap. We've got, oh, I've forgotten the first name, someone Slingsby. Henry Slingsby. So, so every, Henry Slingsby. everything about him is right. completely true. So he true. was a landowner yeah. in He was Nesbury. the landowner. The, the cave was originally on his land in Castle. North Yorkshire. Um, Married to Elizabetha, and she uh, no. did open. Elizabetha is the question: ah, is, Does she exist? Ah, gotcha. Everything from there. Okay. Um, so everything about him is completely true. Mm. The question is: Was Elizabetha a person? Here's another question: If she's trying to escape, surely um, no. I suppose Hull would be one of the closest ports in Yorkshire. The, they probably thing. would have been closer ports, but I don't think they would have been big enough. That oh, we do regular to, trips to, to Spain to from get this to one of the continent, even yeah. Because I mean, Scarborough, in the, oh, <laughs> Scarborough, <Whitby laughs> they're, they're running the booze cruise down to, <laughs> down to Amsterdam or something. Yeah, so she maybe that's what her husband was trying to do. We don't really know the booze cruise. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> See, let let's do that instead of Mother Shipman's <laughs> game. Right. Oh, I'm leaning very slightly towards true. Okay. I'm trying to gauge your facial reaction. Not that, I, that that ever works. No. And it's a very bad thing to gauge on a podcast yeah. because nobody else can see. <laughs> right. I I think I'm going to fall down on yes on this okay. one. Just because there's so much detail in there that I don't think you would have gone to the effort to make up. <laughs> in my one hour of research <laughs> at Starbucks. One hour of research at Starbucks. <laughs> maybe that's, maybe you try to throw me off with that. Maybe you've told me you just did one hour at Starbucks when you've actually spent... <laughs> Days. I can tell you right now that that is completely true. I did an hour of <laughs> yes. research at Starbucks. Right. I'm going to say this is true. Okay. Final answer? Yes. Elizabeth Slingsby? Yes. Is BS. No, she isn't. <laughs> she never existed. <sighs> I can tell you what his wife was actually called. She was just called Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> she, no. She was just his wife. Never did anything exciting to all intents and purposes. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that no. is all complete BS. No, I'm sorry. that has to be true because you can't have come up with that in a morning. I'm sorry. No. <laughs> oh, I was going to yes. win. I was going to win. It's one all. Oh. <laughs> no, uh, I, yeah, the more I wrote that, I was like, yeah, I kind of wish this woman existed because she a, sounds that, amazing. That's but, a really good story. Um, Even like all these trumped up charges on stuff, like hiding behind the well. 
Like, yeah. who would, going back, I should have interrogated that even more because that's such a stupid thing to charge someone with. Oh, I'll just wait in a while for a parliamentarian soldier to turn up. Yeah, but, you know, this was, like you say, this is right about the time that people are still being accused of witchcraft as mm. well. So, yeah, probably anything goes. And, and if she's gone to court and they just want her to go down, then they'll just throw anything at her. Mm. Not that any of it happened. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, we're discussing it. We're debating like, something oh, yes, that never happened. Thing. Yes, yeah. of course, it was terrible about <laughs> uh, No, but it's, it's true there is a wishing well in the cave. You'll mm. know that when we go there. <laughs> oh, is that my <laughs> consolation prize? We get to go and visit Old Mother Shipton's cave. No, you're going on your own. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Jones. Yeah, got you on a history fact. Got that never history. happens. That, that was a really good story as well. You've actually put genuine effort into the finale this time. Oh, damn well, you know, that must have been a really strong flat white that I had. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Starbucks. <laughs> Uh, so for my next fact, I wanted to go back to the Wild West. Oh, right. You've, because yeah, you've we, done a couple of Wild West facts. Oh, you had one oh. about koi poo overrunning a <laughs> yeah, ghost yeah. town or something. Yeah, it was like I had a ghost town fact. Yeah. Season one, I think that was way back I don't then. know. But this is like, uh, I want to talk about the Wild West gangs of oh. the 1800s. Okay. So I was researching this. Some of the popular gangs you might know, like um, Billy the Kid, mm. uh, the Dalton Gang, Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch. I was went down a bit of a rabbit hole on kind of Wild West gangs. Right. And it kind of links to another kind of Victorian pastime that was quite popular as well. It's <laughs> taking pictures of the dead. Oh, yeah. So I know if you go online and Google those sort of pictures, there's loads of like creepy images. Because photography was quite new. It first mm-hmm. started to become popularized for like the common person in like the 1840s and 50s mm-hmm. when it started to become really popular so it was kind of it was a way for people to commemorate loved ones yeah. in a new and exciting way yeah and very grim for us it's grim but you remember the context of the time it probably wasn't so grim yeah to kind of display deceased family members yeah because i suppose it's just another memory that you've got of them I exactly guess. it's really difficult for us to get our heads around mm. why they would display dead bodies mm. it still goes on in some places today where well, Wow. Like the dead body will be displayed for a few days. Maybe like the dead body will be doing something that he loved in life, like playing a game of cards, game wow. of dominoes or something. Oh, so, so it's like you become like a human puppet. Yeah, exactly. And people wow. come come along and they say, ah, oh, he loved his dominoes, that guy. He's got a picture of him. <laughs> For posterity. That's amazing. I'm going to take a picture of you reading all of my books. (laughs) You'll probably come back and haunt me. (laughs) Come and tear up the pictures. (laughs) Come back and tear up the books. So they also did this to Wild West criminals. This is true, by the way. Right. As a way of proof. Yep, we got this gang member. Here he is. And they wouldn't really put them in very exciting displays like playing dominoes. That would have been mm. ridiculous. They used to kind of line them up in coffins, maybe. Or... Oh, I think I've seen photos like this. It was kind of just to say, yep, yeah, we got him. Yeah, everybody. we definitely got him. We yeah. definitely got him. Here's yeah. a picture. And then there's usually like some dopey sheriff standing next to it with a vacant look on his face because he's not Taking used to... the credit. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> some bounty hunter brought him in. Yeah. There's the sheriff. But before we get on to the fact I wanted to talk about, as I said, I went down a rabbit hole on this one and there's some weird pictures. There was one, there was a kind of a gang member called Tom Blackjack Ketchum. That's a heck of a name. It is. That sounds like a proper gang member. Yeah. It was a right piece of work though. Train robberies, murder, all sorts of nasty stuff this guy got up to. So he was caught. He was sentenced to be hanged in Clayton, New Mexico. Right. But apparently nobody in Clayton had any experience with hanging Mm -hmm. because so they just kind of botched it. The rope wasn't the right length. Oh god! And he was decapitated as he was as the trapdoor was released. Mm-hmm. And they took a picture of the decapitated body. Oh, and again, god. there's a dopey sheriff like leading there, and he's got this facial expression like he's like, "Oops." <laughs> 
what? And he's with some random other person just standing there with like a weird kind of grin on his face. It's just just like, to sort of prove that... They'd... Just to prove it had been done. That's insane. The worst thing is they made a postcard out of this and thought they'd make a bit of money. Of course they did. They did. It was like... And I'm sure like my first reaction would to be violently sick. Yeah. But they're like, oops. Look what, look what I on. saw on my <laughs> trip to New Mexico. <laughs> Oh, it's Blackjack Ketchum. Oh, my God. Decapitated corpse. So I wouldn't have made a postcard and sold it, but there you go. And it's these sort of grim pictures that were taken that I wanted to get onto today. Okay. What a lovely, happy note we're striking on the last episode. I had two executions. <laughs> and I'm going for pictures of decapitated bodies. Right. Have you ever heard of the outlaw Elmer McCurdy? No. Oh, this is all true. Okay. So I want to give a bit of a background to poor Elmer. Right. Because he had a bit of a haphazard bad luck outlaw's career. Right. Elmer? Elmer McCurdy. McCurdy. Right, okay. So his story starts in 1907 when he joined the US Army. Right. He was originally a machine gun operator, but also trained in managing nitroglycerin explosives. Oh, wow. Right. So is this true? This is true. Okay. Like, his backstory is true. Right. I think it's quite interesting. Right. So after he was honourably discharged from the army in 1910, mm-hmm. he didn't really know what to do with himself. Mm-hmm. So he met up with a friend of his, and they had the idea that they'd get into a life of crime. He says, hey, I've got explosive training. We could rob trains. We could blow up lockboxes, blow up safes. We're going to make bank off of this. Mm-hmm. So him and his friend go into the crime business. Okay. And before his first robbery, he was arrested in Kansas for possession of chisels, hacksaws, nitroglycerin, gunpowder, and money sacks. <laughs> like literally with the dollar sign on it. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> and he was arrested for possession of burglary paraphernalia. Oh, God. was it like a str- black and white striped top and a <laughs> he mask? May, he may as well. This is like a Disney crime. This is going along. So he was arrested. Do you want to know what defence they claimed? Oh, they were going to a fancy dress ball. (laughs) No, this is a really good one. They told the judge we needed those tools because we were going to work on a foot-operated machine gun they were inventing. Mm Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, they were found not guilty as well. (laughs) So the judge believed him. We need to get the judge on this game. (laughs) I might get some points. Everything's true, of course. So, what a stroke of luck. They thought, right, we've still got the burglary paraphernalia. (laughs) They didn't take it on. This is the early 1900s. This is like if me and you became criminals. (laughs) Paul, have you got the bags with the dollar signs on it? I'm just finishing writing the dollars on them. (laughs) So... Uh, by March 1911, he's been found not guilty. They've relocated to Oklahoma now. Get out, get out of Kansas. Mm-hmm. They know us in there. He kind of teamed up with three other men at this point to rob the Iron Mountain Missouri Pacific Railroad. Okay. He heard that there was a lockbox on this train with $4,000 in it. Okay. So they stopped the train. They bought it. They've got everyone safely stored away. They've mm-hmm. got all the time in the world to open this safe. Mm-hmm. He sets the nitroglycerin, which blows the safe up along with most of the money. Mm-hmm. But they do manage to escape with $450 of silver coins. Right. Which I suppose would have been quite a bit by then. But they had to, had trouble getting them out because a lot of them had been melted and fused into the safe's frame after the explosion. This was So a, they had to chisel out all of these Oh, so the chisels came in. <laughs> chis- exactly. He brought his chisels along with him. This exactly. is the explosives expert. This is the expert from the army. So <laughs> right. you're kind of glad he didn't stay in the army, okay. really. Obviously, he used far too much explosives. His, his career only lasted six months 
unfortunately. If, if only there were some clues as to why. Because after this, the, the second robbery he tried, there was a train that contained $400,000 in cash. Okay. However, his gang stopped the wrong train. <laughs> they, they stopped a passenger train and they were able to steal... $46 from the mail clerk, two bottles of whiskey, a revolver, a coat, and the train conductor's watch. And they were mocked in the local newspapers for one of the smallest robberies in history. That's incredible. Um, a posse was sent out after the McCurdy gang. Um, they were found hiding in a barn. And Elmer McCurdy decided a shootout was the way to go. Right. And he was killed. What a shame. And before he invented that foot operating <laughs> machine gun. So just that's all true. Wow. By the way, that's his life of crime. That's incredible. That, like, that is literally like if me and you decided to become criminals. <laughs> it's just, Paul, and there's $400,000 coming on this train. Let's rob this leisure passenger train instead and get $46. Oh, God. So poor Elmer. So now he's been killed by this posse. Right. So this is yes or BS from now on. Okay. Right. He's been taken to the nearest town, which was Pohuxa in Oklahoma. Right. The undertaker embalmed the body. Right. But it was unclaimed. He had no family members to speak of. Oh. Uh, so basically, the undertaker is so annoyed that he's had to spend money to embalm this criminal. And no one's claiming him. Mm -hmm. He's not being paid. The sheriff won't pay him. Oh, either. God, I've got so, an idea where this is going. <laughs> so he decides to display the body for money. Right. And he was kind of running a little sideshow outside of the Undertaker's. Right. Then he was sold to a travelling carnival who kind of took the Undertaker's idea. Right. And the travelling carnival displayed him until 1922. He was then moved to a museum of crime where he was still put on display. And in 1933, he was picked up by a film director, Dwayne Esper, who was promoting a new exploitation film. Right. So the corpse was placed in the lobby of the theatres. Why? And to kind of, it's a spooky exploitation film of the 30s. Right, okay. It's kind of freak people out. But he displayed him as dead dope fiend. Not Elmer McCurdy. It seems by this point, Elmer's been passed to so many different people that his original name's been forgotten. Right, okay. So, Elmer has his movie debut in 1933 right. in the lobby. Actually, before his next step, I should point out that by this time, Elmer's body had mummified itself and had shrunk a bit. Oh, my God. Because he's been embalmed for so what, long. What year was he killed? Uh, 1911. And this is 1933 we're up to now, so he's off on an adventure. Right, okay. So, his next step... In 1949, he was placed into storage in a Los Angeles warehouse because the film industry didn't know what to do with them. Just bury him. Like <laughs> <No>. <laughs> You'd think having some, some respect for the dead. <sighs> so he was left in this Los Angeles warehouse. In 1964, he was pulled out again and he started another film called She Freak. <laughs> So he's having, he's having. Wait, when you say that he starred in the film, <laughs> did he have many lines? <laughs> Maybe they had to dub some of his lines. Who knows? So did they put the basically they put the corpse in the but, film? Uh, yes, but at this point, the, there was they thought he was a wax doll because oh he, again he passed he passed around so many times. Right. People just thought, oh, he's a wax prop in an L.A. film lot. Right. So they just kind of pulled him out and used him as a prop. And then in 1968, he was sold to a wax figure museum. Oh, God. So he, his adventure doesn't stop. He was falling to bits by this point in the 60s. Some of his fingers had fallen off. Oh, my God. 
and he was decided too gruesome to exhibit until he was once again put on exhibition for the final time in 1976. What? It's recently as 1976. Elmer McCurdy was still on display. But it gets better. He was pulled out of storage in 1976 to star in The $6 Million Man. What? They were filming scenes for the Carnival of Spies episode. And during the shoot, the prop man was moving these wax figurines around. Oh, my God. And one of them was Elmer McCurdy. And they still don't realise by this point that he's... This is where they finally realise. Right. This mannequin, what they thought was hanging from the gallows, but his arm just fell off. And they saw human bone inside. (laughs) Oh, my God. So this was where Elmer McCurdy was finally... Finally discovered after decades moving around carnival shows, being made money off that undertaker, and he was finally buried back in Oklahoma in 1977, apparently. That's insane. And he was buried in Boot Hill, where several other outlaws are buried, actually. Oh, that's the famous, yeah. yeah. That's so they, the took him, they thought that was, yeah. that was quite fitting for him. Wow. That was a roller coaster. <laughs> it certainly was. Just every time you think it's coming to some sort of respectable end, it's like the madness ratchets up another level. Mm. Right. I do have a couple of questions. So, yes. um, yeah, a quick recap. He was a terrible, terrible outlaw. Terrible outlaw. Uh, died in a shootout in 1911. Yes. Because of this thing of taking pictures of the dead, he was embalmed. And and the undertaker thought he'd make some money because no one had paid him for the embalming Right, so he put him on display as a sort of the outlaw that couldn't be killed. Yes. And then he sold him to a travelling carnival of crime. Right. also displayed him. Okay. And then from there, he ended up in a film set. Yes. He was sold to a film director who wanted to display him in the lobby of the theatres. Right. To kind of freak out the audiences. So it's like he's showing this exploitation film. So he's kind of doing like a little carnival in the lobby going yes. like, look at all these horrible things. Say, and one of them's a dead body. Yes. Okay. And from there, yeah, he goes into storage because that was his step into the film industry, as it were. <laughs> so he went into storage in LA. Right. In for a, 30 years or something. 30 years. But he popped in and out to star in different... I don't different think he did. I think maybe people <laughs> popped him in and out. But it was at this point they thought he was a mannequin. Right. Okay. After, after this exploitation film he was put into storage, they just thought he All was right. another one of them. And mannequins. he popped up in a few things because of that. And yes. then ended up in The Six Million Dollar Man. That's yes. The... <laughs> yes. Right. Okay. They were filming an episode in like the spook house. Okay. So he was brought in to be a hanged criminal. And this is when his arm it, fell he off. He finally fell apart and they saw that it was a real corpse. A real human bone. This is like that's. That is horrendous. It is. I mean, that is ludicrous. But how did they know that it was him? If they thought he was a mannequin, was the name sort of still attached to him? Right. When they did the autopsy of him, they kind of matched some facts and figures back to Elmer McCurdy. Uh, Elmer McCurdy had tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. Um, his embalmed body showed signs of tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. He was filled with embalming fluid that was used at the time that he was killed. Oh, right. Okay. And oh, so they can kind of pinpoint him to a period in history and then... They yes, can and the bullet wounds were matched to guns. Oh, my like, God. Sh- like guns that were used at the time. Right. So they did a bit of like forensics. Right. So And that's how they found out that who it was. Yes. And they did um, also did some radiographs of the skull and placed them over photos of McCurdy at the time. Right. Found out that was matched up. Right. They're like 90% sure it was McCurdy. It was him. It was hard. It, it's, the chances of being someone else completely random are mm. quite low because a lot of other outlaws' bodies were accounted for. Mm-hmm. And Elmer McCurdy just went off on his adventures. Wow. This is extraordinary. Mm. This, is, I think, has to be one of the strangest facts we've had out mm. of the 120 we've Thought done. I'd bring out the big guns for the finale. <laughs> I absolutely think that you could have made this up mm. because 
this is just so ludicrous that this <laughs> could have come from the dark recesses of your mind. But I think it might be true. Mm. I think, yeah, you had, you had this sort of intro with the pictures of the dead and all the rest of it, which sort of might have sparked something in your head to go, what if this happened to one mm. of the people in the pictures? But I don't know, there's just something about it that makes me think that, yeah, they, this absolutely could have happened. Yeah, travel in circuses and all that sort of stuff. They had these sort of chamber of horrors kind of things. The macabre. Especially around about that time, the kind of penny dreadful sort of thing. And then to become like a Hollywood prop and then to be not sort of realised it was really a, a body and was just mm. a... It must have been a super realistic mannequin, they thought he was, because mannequins... Well, he's, he'd mummified a lot by the time he was in the LA film lot. The, the thing that I find most bizarre about this is that he was finally discovered to be a real person on the set of The Six Million Dollar Man. <laughs> That is casting a little bit of doubt on this because mm. I think if you were making this up, you would go, where's the most ridiculous place that he would finally be discovered mm. and it would be on that. Uh, yeah, that is sort of sticking out a little bit as something you could have made mm. up, but I think it's true. I kind of mm. don't want it to be true, but mm. I think it is true. Is that your final answer? Yes, it is. This I'm going to say this is true. Entire story is true. <laughs> no, it is. <laughs> it is. That was is insane. Elmer McCurdy, one of the most incompetent outlaws of all time. Became was, like a living prop. And, and was found in the $6 million man. That is insane. Mm, it is. I kind of don't even, like, <laughs> I was suspected it was true. I kind of didn't want it to be true. And now mm. I know that it's true. I kind of, I still kind of can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently there was about 300 people came to his funeral as well. Like um, wow! It's quite. He had a nice like a funeral procession up to Boot Hill. Like he's been, he's buried at the summit. So he finally well. had a little. He's bit finally of got a little bit of respect. respect and dignity. Yeah. I mean, he, he wasn't a very pleasant person in life. No, to be fair. But I think that's no way to like no justification for moving someone's body. That's mummified body around freak shows. That's incredible. Mm. Wow! What a great fact. That I think that is one of the best. Definitely, just because it's so. I don't mind losing mad. the points. It's like we've had a few of these facts. Yeah, I, I just enjoy the fact so much. That's insane. I don't mind losing the points. Wow. Point. So, Elma. Elma McCurdy. Elma McCurdy. Well, you were a criminal, but we salute you here <laughs> on Yes and Yes. We're off to recreate your exploits. <laughs> right. How do you follow that? Exactly. <laughs> well, you follow it with a fact about Voltaire. I've never read any Voltaire. He's a very famous French Enlightenment writer. I obviously know the name, but I, yeah. couldn't, I couldn't name anything he's written. I, I genuinely don't think you're alone in that. I think a lot <laughs> of people probably wouldn't be able to name one major work that he wrote. Mm. But um, he was very prolific. He wrote more than 50 plays, countless poems and all sorts of things. He was also a philosopher. He wrote lots of quite high-end philosophy, mm. um, as well as the histories. He wrote about the history of the Russian Empire. He wrote a, a kind of detailed history of that. So, yeah, he wrote all sorts of things. Born 1694 died 1778 he was 83 when he died mm. which for the 18th century was a, a quite a lot i've never read any voltaire and i kind of don't really know an awful lot about him but i, I do follow in his footsteps in some respects um because uh he used to drink anywhere near 40 cups of coffee a day 40 and he would write for 18 hours a day from his bed well you see you there, you are similar in some respects but i take the writing part out of it <laughs> <laughs> you just drink coffee in bed yeah i i spend 18 hours a day just in bed asleep usually that's exactly. the life of a writer <laughs> you just compare yourself to voltaire <laughs> yeah so uh, that's voltaire but 
I say this is a fact about Voltaire, but it's kind of about a little... It's not about any of his works. It's kind of about how he um, managed to get into high society to the extent where he could dedicate his life to just writing. He didn't have to have a normal job. Mm. Um, And he did that by scamming the French National Lottery. Oh, dear. Here we go. So, before we get into that little story, some facts about the very first English lottery. Do you know what it was? Ooh, isn't this Elizabeth I? It is, yeah. It was 1567. Mm. Um, Elizabeth I arranged a sort of fundraising lottery to uh, raise funds for the strength of the realm. It's kind of recorded as... uh, There's 400,000 tickets put on sale there were 10 shillings each which in um, 1567 is equivalent to about 80 pounds today Jeez. so it's about 100 dollars or so and first prize though was 5000 pounds mm. which is like life changing at mm. that time it was equivalent of about a million today the prize that was paid partly in cash but also partly in gold and silver plate and merchandisers uh, which <laughs> so like basically meant t-shirt with Queen Elizabeth on <laughs> you, um, sort of tapestries was uh, among this and wall hangings and a large quantity of good linen is, is, is this this is true this is all completely yeah. true about I love that they tapestry like a poster <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just a big cloth poster is, <laughs> is part of your prize um, this is my favourite fact about the very first English uh, lottery though which was that every single person who bought a ticket got one week's immunity from everything except murder treason and piracy really <laughs> That's wow! That's insane. You're just asking for trouble. Hey, it's fifteen sixty-seven. So, Anything robber- goes. Robbery. Yeah, if you've got a lottery ticket, just you know, so, show, show it to the magistrate. Like, get out of my house! It's your, oh, you've got a lottery ticket. Yeah, it's in. like get out of jail free, basically. Jeez. Except it costs you ten shillings. Who so, came up with that idea? I don't know. It's just to encourage people to take part, I guess. Yeah. So that's um, that's fifteen sixty seven, the very first English national lottery. Um, the French lottery. I, I say the French national lottery. It was, the, it was set in Paris. The Paris lottery. This is in the uh, early eighteenth century. The French government established a lottery in Paris to encourage people to buy bonds, so that they would basically give their money to the government and the government could then spend it, but it was kind of kept in bond, basically. So they came up with this idea of organising a lottery that was only open to people who'd bought these bonds. Mm -hmm. And the incentive was that the prize was 500,000 francs, which was a large amount of money, but it was also the cost of your bond back. So it was basically Mm -hmm. a chance to more than double your money, Um, which on its own sounds like quite a nice... Sweet deal. Yeah, quite a good plan. Except they linked the cost of the tickets to the cost of the bond that you owned by a ratio of one to a thousand. So basically, uh, if you had a half a million franc bond, your ticket would cost 500 francs, okay, for this lottery. You wouldn't get 500 tickets. Mm. You'd get one ticket for that bond. So it's a progressive... Yeah. So, in 1729, Voltaire, known as François-Marie Arouet, uh, this is before he kind of established himself as a pen name, um, teamed up with his friend Charles-Marie de la Condamine, who is um, a mathematician as well as a geographer and an explorer and all Mm. sorts. He turned out to be a bit of a sort of Renaissance man, that guy. Uh, But they teamed up along with a group of sort of fellow gamblers. There's around a dozen of people involved in this scheme and formed a syndicate where they bought up lots and lots and lots of thousand franc bonds, which basically meant that for every single one of those, they paid one franc and got one ticket. So rather than pooling all their money into one big bond, handing that over to the government and sitting there holding their one ticket going, I hope number 68 comes up. 
uh, they bought loads and loads of smaller mm. quantity bonds, which gave them loads and loads and loads of chances to win. The government obviously didn't think this through. A slight sort of, you know, it's slightly short-sighted. Mm. Uh, so this syndicate ended up pretty much cornering the market in this lottery. <laughs> they absolutely raked it in mm. uh, until the whole scheme kind of was realised to be slightly corrupt. Um, and it was closed in 1730 in Paris when they apparently realised that the cost of the prizes was more than the total cost of all of the tickets. Wow. They've, they've really dropped the ball. Yeah, there, so they were slightly short-sighted in this system. But as soon as uh, they shut down the Paris lottery in 1730, what does Voltaire do? He just realises that they're doing exactly the same thing down the road in Lorraine, near Strasbourg, goes down there and keeps doing the same thing. <laughs> So he, he takes all of his winnings from Paris, invests it in the uh, Alsace-Lorraine uh, lottery, um, does exactly the same thing until they realise the same thing's happening all over again. They shut that lottery down. He returns to Paris now at, from nowhere, an incredibly wealthy man. He was also very, he was very wise in, in terms of uh, investments. He was very good with his money and he started invested in all sorts of things like military equipment companies and things. So this, it wasn't just that he won enough money to kind of free up his time. He won enough money and then was very astute about what he did with it. Mm. So what you're saying is basically if you win the lottery, invest in the arms business. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Paul's, yeah. Paul's advice. No, if you scam the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. uh, so yes, this is the great sort of story about how Voltaire established himself as the, the kind of great thinker and writer of the 18th century in France. He did so by freeing up his time by scamming the Paris lottery. A couple of questions. Mm -hmm. After he'd scammed the Paris lottery, mm -hmm. why didn't the authorities try to go after him and arrest him? Did they know he was scamming the lottery and him and his kind of gang of miscreants? It, I say it was a scam. It was really just a loophole. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't okay. illegal so what I, they were doing. They'd, yeah, like, it's, it's yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, so like, yeah. You can't, can't arrest you, but you're not, you're not doing the moral thing. Yeah, yeah, you're not playing very fair, mm. but they created this situation and it's just they've been short-sighted enough to kind of leave this loophole in it that so which they've exploited. Do any other crimes? Was he you keep calling it a crime. <laughs> I find it interesting. Uh, no, he was just, you know, he was a writer and a philosopher. This is his own sort of... He was uh, sent to prison in the Bastille as as a young man. So before this, I think, Ooh, um, he wrote sort of anti-government pamphlets mm. and things, which kind of got him into hot water. Um, so he had he had been the Bastille, but uh, like I say, this isn't this isn't criminal. What he's was, doing was his anti-government leaflet about how terrible the lottery was. <laughs> <laughs> it's about how terribly stupid the people running the Parisian lottery. He's got to be are. a right idiot. <laughs> right. So he wasn't really a famous author at the time. No, he this was, is was he up and coming? Had he written anything by this point? Yeah, he he was sort of establishing himself as a writer. But his sort of big historical and philosophical works, his plays and all that sort of stuff. Was he making a living off the writing then? He must have been, but probably not mm. a particularly lucrative so one. So he's kind of his low, low level writer. Mm. Opportunity comes along to join up with this syndicate with his mathematician friend who's discovered this and take full advantage of the system. Did, were any other cities running lotteries like this? I'm guessing that they would have been, yeah. Because, I mean, on paper, it makes a lot of sense. You, you you give people who buy bonds a chance to win more money, including the cost of their bond back. So it is quite a sensible idea. It was the thing of tying the cost of the tickets to the to the 
amount of the bond is uh, the short-sighted part. It's ridiculous. Yeah, but um, yeah, lotteries were big in France. I think uh, the English language picked the word lottery up from French. Really? Yeah, so they, they were probably kind of, they probably predate ours. What's, do you know the origin of lottery then? Like, where's where's um, it come from? From, well, lotto is, is the earlier form of it, which just means lot in Italian, I think, mm. and it has has its roots in Latin. Mm. So the the idea is, is that you would win your lot. Ah, drawing lots, drawing that lots. sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. It's where drawing blanks comes from as well, you know? If you draw really? a blank, yeah. Well, I thought that was like to do with guns, like firing blanks. Oh, no. Or... Lotteries would originally be the big pot of names and then mm. a big pot of prizes. And the big pot of prizes include lot, lots of blank tickets. So a name would be pulled out, but you don't automatically win. You then have to pick a prize out. And if you, mm. your name gets picked out and then a blank ticket gets pulled out, you would don't win anything. Really? And that's where drawing blanks comes from. Because this, this Elizabethan lottery was advertised as being one of the ones that were, there were no blanks. Right. Okay, I'm leaning towards true. This is kind of the most, this is the most sensible thing we've had this episode. <laughs> a French playwright <laughs> scanning the lottery. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> the fact that that's the most sensible. <laughs> right, this seems very believable but you're looking a bit smug <laughs> that's just my normal expression <laughs> you know, i think i'm just going to take a punt on this one and say this this feels true okay but then again have you gone with like a normal steady you've just because you've done this before with literature you've just picked literature and then but they've all been true though in the past I don't think they have dr seuss definitely well was. not dr seuss <laughs> but um i'm gonna have to do it yes this is true okay Final answer? Yes. That story mm-hmm. is true. Ah. Yeah, completely it true. Yeah. Established it itself seemed, by scamming the lottery. It seemed very neat and compact. Yeah. That story. <laughs> <laughs> it was like it was nice a nice little bundle. Yeah. No, completely true. Yeah. yeah. So he sort of held us in very high regard as a sort of big French Enlightenment writer, but um he got there by by pulling this trick. If only he could have taught Elmer McCurdy <laughs> some <laughs> lessons in, in how to scam. Well, 2-2 two, two now then, Jones. 2-all, yeah. <sighs> Let's see if I can pull the last two points and get a, a th- another victory. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Paul, well done. Mm. Well, well done to me, actually. I got that point. <laughs> yeah, well done to you. <laughs> so, my final fact, I'm thinking... We couldn't finish the season oh, no. without an eccentric Victorian. Oh, you know what? When I was putting mine together, I was like, I'm going to find an eccentric, but I haven't done one. I think it's because this one, you've got me a couple of times. It's, it's yeah. eccentric Victorians and pets we're going to go with. Right. Because you got me a couple of times this season with pets at funerals. Yes. So it was like Mr. Budgie or whatever it was called at uh, Mozart's funeral. Mozart and the presidential pets. Presidential pets. Mm. So I thought, how deep down the rabbit hole do I go <laughs> right. and find Victorian pets and funerals? Oh, dear me. So after much, much soul searching, okay, I found, found my answer. Right. We're going back to the Victorian era. Right. And we're going to the town of Accrington in Lancashire. <laughs> right. And we're starting off with a man called Jonathan Prodgers. 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 Okay. Uh, he had made it big in the cotton industry down there. Uh, so he uh, was from a successful family of weavers anyway, going back into the 1600s, 1700s. Mm-hmm. And he'd saved enough to start buying some machinery in the 1840s. Mm-hmm. Uh, set up his own cotton mill down in Accrington. Uh, kind of grew through the 40s to 60s. Mm-hmm. And it kind of expanded part of the town of Accrington. That was quite a common thing in Victorian era where kind of well-meaning industrialists would build 
their own towns for the workers. Yeah. So, like, you know, Cadbury's were Cadbury, in Birmingham. Yeah. Like, uh, he built like a, a, a town for the workers. And they had good living conditions there. Yeah. And people actually loved working for Cadbury's. Yeah, there was the laundry one as well, I think, in Merseyside. I can't remember what that guy's yeah, name was. Yeah, there's quite a few. And they're still, these are still standing, these towns yeah. today. A lot yeah. Of them. Uh, it's the same with um, Jonathan Prodgers and his mill town he built in Accrington. Okay. It's just now another area of Accrington now, though. But we're not here to talk about Jonathan Prodgers. Mm-hmm. We're here to talk about his wastrel son, Samuel. <laughs> right. Samuel Prodgers. Samuel Prodgers. Okay. Now, he was the youngest of five sons. So he's the son of a very wealthy family now. Mm-hmm. He's got nothing to do with his time. He doesn't need a job. Mm-hmm. So he kind of, he gets interest in conservation. There's a big resurgence of interest in botany, um, biology, mm-hmm. the animal world mm-hmm. during the Victorian era. And when Samuel was 17 in 1872, he found an abandoned baby squirrel near the woods, <laughs> near the family factory mm-hmm. in Accrington. Now... Right. <laughs> My spidey senses are tingling. <laughs> he wanted to kind of breed animals. He kept like a menagerie, but obviously this baby squirrel was his favourite. He called him Samuel Jr. Of well. course he did. But he had several parrots, an ostrich, uh, lots of cats and dogs as well. Did he find them abandoned in the <laughs> no, woods? He didn't find them abandoned in the woods. But it was his little pet red squirrel, Samuel Jr., that he loved the most. Right. And when Samuel Jr. died, he just replaced it with a new squirrel. Because by this point, he started... <laughs> Pretended to... nothing had happened. <laughs> exactly. He called him Samuel Jr. the second. Right. He, he loved those animals so much. Mm-hmm. And actually, it was the grey squirrel was introduced in 1876 to the UK. Yeah, I was going to ask about whether it was a red or a grey squirrel. It was a red squirrel. He kind of, Samuel later in life went on a campaign against the grey squirrel. As uh-huh. you know, it's a, a very invasive species. species, species yeah. It kind of it's, pushes red squirrels out of their habitats. Mm. But it's the, this is the part where we get to the funeral. When Samuel died in March of 1912, he wanted this conservation message at his own funeral. Because he saw the red squirrel as something kind of quintessentially English and worth preserving. And of course, at this time, by the early 1900s, industrialization had kind of taken over a lot of greenbelt land by this point. Mm-hmm. So he was very much, I want to get a message out. So in his will, he wanted Samuel Jr. II to give an obituary at the funeral. His squirrel. His squirrel. The oh. second squirrel he ever owned. The second squirrel. Okay. Samuel Jr. II. Mm-hmm. So... He had him up on the plinth, giving the obituary. And you want to hear what words were given to little Samuel Jr.? I'm guessing he probably didn't say very much. Of course, the the vicar had to speak on behalf of Samuel Jr. Right. He said, we will need no words when Samuel stands. That's little Samuel Jr. the second. His face will show us all we need to know. For in that gaze lives a truth nobler than any words. As he witnessed my life, now let him watch over me in death. I ask only that others look upon him and see the same truth I once did. So, <laughs> yes or yes on the whole thing. This. I'm coming out strong this on this last one. Is BS. <laughs> <laughs> What makes you say that? I, right, hang on, hang on, hang on. Um, okay. <laughs> I literally, I, I don't know where to begin. Right, go back to his dad. Father, Jonathan Prodgers. Right, when did he open his cotton mills? In the 1840s, 1840s. but it grew exponentially through the 1840s to 60s. Right, now Samuel Jr., mm. his son... Yes. He was born in 1855. 1855, okay. And he found Samuel Jr., the squirrel... In 1872. 
when he was 17. Okay. Uh, and this squirrel was only a baby? Only a baby. Abandoned. Wh- when did he get presumably. Samuel Jr. the second, the squirrel? Um, he started to breed squirrels after this. So <laughs> Of course he did. So he, they were captured squirrels after this. So he would kind of breed them in well, his own that's not conservation. <laughs> Capturing <laughs> wild animals and then keeping them in captivity. Well, it's for study purposes as well, I presume. He was uh, very into his... He's biology and animals. Right. I have absolutely no idea how long a squirrel lives. I'm guessing it's... It's about 25 years in captivity. <laughs> I've, I've peeled it off Thus every question. says someone who needed this story to make sense, <laughs> so Googled how long a squirrel lives. Uh, right. Okay, so he found him when he was 17 in, in what year again? Um, 1872. 1872. Right. <laughs> and then he gets another one after he's bred squirrels. Yes. Samuel Jr. the first. He's died. Passes away. Yes. Now, the conservation message that he wants his pet squirrel to read out as a eulogy <laughs> at yeah. his own funeral. That the the main part of that message was about the the plight of the red squirrel? Yes. Oh right, okay. So he had become so worried about grey squirrels. The invasive species. That he <laughs> He decided to make himself a perpetual object of ridicule <laughs> by having a squirrel stand up at his funeral and say absolutely nothing it at all. It actually had to be kept in a cage, so it wasn't allowed to... It couldn't have just stood. So it wasn't a tame squirrel. It well, it was tame enough, but if you put a squirrel in front of a crowd of people at a funeral, it's going to it's gonna try and make a bolt for oh, somewhere. Of course it has It's not going to just even it's a tame squirrel. It's not going to understand the reverence of the occasion, of course. <laughs> Did they put it's a like black tie on it? This, what are you feeling on this one? I me? think you've made every syllable of that up. <laughs> you think so? But then again, I mean, yeah. Oh, God, I hate this game because mm. the quote sounded believable, but it could just be something that you found somewhere else and spliced together. Mm. The squirrel standing up at a funeral sounds utterly ridiculous, but early 1900s were insane. We learned that mm. when they held a horse race on stage at the Coliseum. Mm. I, but I just, <laughs> I can't see this being true. Is this like the hamster's Viagra curing jet lag? <laughs> yeah, I just, I can't, I, so hang on, the dad was called Samuel. Uh, Jonathan. Oh, Jonathan. Right, okay. The son was called Samuel. The son was called Samuel. Then the squirrel was called Samuel. Samuel and then Jr. the other squirrel was called Samuel. Samuel Jr. the second. The squirrel that outlived him. Yeah, Did he have him. a wife and children? I don't know. It, um, I'm guessing not. Think, if this is how he spent his time, that's not going to go down well possibly on Match.com. Not, I don't, <laughs> possibly not. I, I don't know. Right. <laughs> I... Uh, I can see this actually being true because yeah you're right conservation was a big thing mm. in kind of late 19th century early 20th century people kind of did start to get a bit of a conscience about stuff we've talked we've said before like vegetarianism was a big thing mm. around about then so yeah that does kind of make sense like i know i can just sort of say that this is ridiculous because it sounds ridiculous but there is a genuine kind of fact that's putting a doubt in my head which is i don't know how quickly the the gray squirrel replacing the red squirrel mm. thing kind of kicked off for it to be such a bad issue by the 1910s. Well, it, it has been 40 years since the introduction. Yeah. And they are a very invasive species. They are. They're very confident compared to the Reds. <laughs> they're very confident. No, they are. <laughs> <laughs> Would you go to a job interview? <laughs> oh, yeah. We took the grey squirrel over no, the Red I mean, He was a lot very, more confident. Like, a red squirrel would run away from you, but a grey mm. squirrel would be quite inquisitive and come forward and mm. sort of take food out of people's hands and stuff. So the, in, their natures are very different. I just... I. <laughs> 
Can, I you, said not, can you not bring yourself to I, say that I, this I just, is true? I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's true, but I just can't do it. I think you've made this up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I keep saying this has got you making it up written all over it, and then it, they all turn out to be true. Mm. But this genuinely has got you making it up written all over it. Mm. And I have to say that it's BS. I wouldn't be surprised if that's wrong, but I have to say this is BS. Is that your final answer? <laughs> yeah, this is BS. You have to remember Bill Borks was real. I know. This entire fact, I made up. <laughs> <laughs> this is entirely BS. That had you making it up written it's because you had so many, like, pet funeral facts. I wanted to try and get you with something. <laughs> so originally, I was going to use the story of Mother Prodgers. I don't know if you've heard that one before. What, what, who was she? A badger? <laughs> no, this is actually a true story. It was like... Um, Mother Prodgers? Yeah, Mrs. Giacometti Prodgers was a Victorian aristocrat. She hated cab drivers. She would often try and take them to court and she would kind of try and stop them just before the full fare had to be paid. What? They used to call her Mother Prodgers and then like ride the cab away when they saw her coming because nobody wanted to take her as a fare because she was such what? A, a terrible customer. So how did you get from there to a squirrel reading the literally, I literally took the name Prodgers, slapped it onto uh, old Samuel. So you found a Victorian eccentric, stole his surname, and then invented someone who asked a squirrel to read a eulogy at his funeral. Do you think I fooled anyone with that one? It's kind of, I'm kind of glad this is the last in the season, because I think you need to maybe go <laughs> into care. I think it's the last episode ever. <laughs> If ever there was a sign that you needed a holiday. And I, I wrote that eulogy myself. Yeah. Now, did you write it from scratch? Or from did you... scratch, yeah. That's, now, that's quite impressive. I put a lot of work into it's Samuel It's just such Rogers. a shame you put it in the mouth of a thing that doesn't talk. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I might get you one last time for this season, <laughs> but no. Well, you've gone out on a... <laughs> Quite literally, are you high? <laughs> I knew I should have used Elma McCurdy as the last fact. I thought you were going to go, I knew I should have used walruses instead of squirrels. <laughs> right, well, what a way to go out. <laughs> I'm to feel I'm, I went out season three with a whimper. instead. Of, instead no, it was a brilliant story. It's just, I'm kind of still reeling from how unusual it was. <laughs> Um, so now you uh, tried to revisit something we occasionally come up to with on this on this podcast, but we're there with the Victorian eccentric. They're a wealth of interesting yeah. nonsense. You know who else is? Oh, it's not. Oh, you've not done Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, have you? Have I? <laughs> oh, this is BS. Yes, it has to be. No, um, don't do this to me. Yeah, we're going back to Tolkien. Oh. No, actually, we're not kind of really going back to Tolkien. We're going back to uh, the Lord of the Rings. Okay. It's specifically, okay? Uh, some facts before we get going about the Lord of the Rings films. Oh. Do you know what year they came out? I remember, 2001, 2 and 3. Yeah, I didn't realise they were that old. They're like childhood memories every year. I, I going to see those. Like they're, they're, those years are burned into my memory. This is insane that like, they're remember... nearly two decades old. I know. They still hold up as well. Ah, they think. absolutely do, yeah. Yeah, the budget at the time was one of the biggest budgets in film history. It was $281 million. Compared to that, The Hobbit, when it was filmed, uh, got a budget of $600 million. Jeez. Yeah, so it was kind of guaranteed to... to... The money doesn't mean everything. Yeah, it's guaranteed to make a profit, I think. Uh, do you know what the most expensive film is? A single film for a budget. Ooh, Titanic? Oh, no. No, that's a good guess. Oh, no, it was one of the 1960s or something. Was it uh, like... Um, no, it's... Yeah, the way, just like a the translation, Julius it's Seaman. more modern, though. You're thinking of Cleopatra, That's I think. the one. Yeah. 
Uh, no, the most expensive film in, in, that's ever been made in Hollywood uh, now is the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean film. Really? Yeah, on Stranger Tides. It was given a budget of $378 million, ended up costing uh, $410 million. Jeez. Um, yeah, it made over a billion, so it was still a success. <laughs> but yeah, that's now the biggest budget in, in Hollywood history. One more fact about these films. Do you know who was offered the role of Gandalf before Ian McKellen? Oh, I heard this, but I can't remember. It was Sean Connery. Yeah. That yeah, was he was his... asked to come out of retirement. Um I just can't see him as Gandalf. No, I don't think it would have been quite as... It wouldn't have had the gravitas of like a Shakespearean actor, I guess. He was offered a fee, obviously, like an acting fee, but he was also offered 15% of whatever the total gross of the entire trilogy was. 15? 15%. Jeez. Yeah, if you had to put a figure on it, how much do you reckon that would have netted him? Hundreds of millions, I'm guessing. If if he'd gone ahead with it and played Mm. Gandalf, it would have got him $437.5 million. And he turned it down. Retirement. It's too, too, too nice an idea, retirement. There is a great quote from Sean Connery that when he was kind of being, the negotiations for him to play Gandalf were in operation. He was asked, you know, why he turned it down. And he says, I never understood it. I read the book. I read the script. I saw the movie and I still don't understand. <laughs> Fair enough. He was fair very, he's very old school, yeah, Sean Connery. Uh, now, that wasn't the first cinematic version of The Lord of the Rings. Was it the animated Yeah, version? there was. There was an animated one in 1978 that apparently only told half of the story. It went halfway mm. through the two towers and then stops. I've never seen it. I'm guessing it doesn't just suddenly cut off and go, you know, <laughs> we'll tell you the rest later and then it's never made. Um, but yeah, that was made in 1978. Do you know about a film version earlier than that? Don't. In 1969, United Artists realised, hey, you know what? There's four principal characters in The Lord of the Rings. And, you know, there's four very, very famous people around at the minute. Let's make a Lord of the Rings film and cast the Mm. Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. So, United Artists. (laughs) Goes, right, Paul McCartney, you can play Frodo. Uh, Ringo, you're going to play Sam. George, you have to play Gandalf, of course. Who do you reckon uh, John Lennon was going to play? Aragorn? Gollum. (laughs) No! (laughs) This can't can't be true. (laughs) So United Artists, uh, they were in the middle of a three-film deal at this point with the Beatles, who'd kind of been on top of the game since like 1963, 64. Uh, They'd made the film A Hard Day's Night in 1964. They then made Help in 1967, which is the only one of these that I've ever seen, and it's the most ludicrous thing. Is that the one that's like a kind of a documentary? No, far from it. Ringo Starr has a ring stuck on his finger, and it has some kind of magical powers, so they get chased around the world by like the members of a cult. It's the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen. It's making kind of like, making Ringo Starr the lead probably wasn't a wasn't good that idea. Yeah, the plot of Spice World as well. <laughs> I haven't seen Spice World. Spice World might be better. I don't know. You never know. So, uh, yeah, Help was a bit of a disaster. So they made Magical Mystery Tour, which is this very bizarre psychedelic Mm. thing. But that was made for the BBC, so it didn't complete the contract. They then did The Yellow Submarine, the animated film. But United Artists said, you're not getting away with that. A, because you're only in it at the end, live action for about five minutes. And the animation was all done by voice actors. It wasn't actually the Beatles. The person who played Paul, do you know who it was in The Yellow Submarine? Ooh, I don't know. It was Jeff. Jeffrey Hughes, who played Onslow in Keeping Up Appearances. Really? That's that's such an obscure reference. Yeah, no one outside of Britain will know that. So a man in a a 90s sitcom. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, Jeffrey Hughes was in Yellow Submarine as Paul McCartney. So um, basically, United Artists want a third film out of the Beatles, and the Beatles need a third film to complete this contract obligation that they've got. So they decide to go all out, all guns blazing, 
on a psychedelic musical version of The Lord of the Rings with John Lennon playing Gollum. So this gets mooted. Richard Lester, who was the guy who went on to direct Superman 2 and Superman 3 in the 80s, uh, he directed the first two Beatles films. Mm -hmm. But the Beatles, they want to go out on a bang here for their third and final film. So who do they want to direct? Only Stanley Kubrick, who by this point is uh, riding high, did Spartacus, 1960s, Dr. Strangelove came out in 64, 2001 came out in 68. So by this point, he is very, very well established. They want the best director in the world to make the ludicrous... Drug-fueled Drug-fueled, multicoloured version of Lord of the Rings with Paul McCartney playing Frodo. Unfortunately, Stanley Kubrick turns it down, mm-hmm. not for any other reason to do with the casting of John Lennon as Gollum, but because he th- considered it too big a story. It was kind of unfilmable mm. because it was too big. Uh, so he turned it down. But there's also a sort of subtext that Tolkien got wind of this and <laughs> said, oh, no, what? you MF and don't. <laughs> Um, Tolkien hated rock music and so as soon as he found out that the Beatles were sort of sniffing around his greatest ever written work uh, he reportedly kind of put the mockers on it and went no you don't kind of refused to sell the rights and so the whole project alas never came to fruition um, which paved the way of course for the animated version um, about a decade decade later Tolkien did eventually sell the rights to United Artists but the Beatles version was never made I immediately think this is BS (laughs) Because even actually, I'm trying to interrogate on the right side of things. So United Artists, Mm -hmm. if they didn't have the rights from Tolkien anyway, Mm -hmm. how could they even moot the idea of a... Yeah, I think this was that the Beatles kind of wanted this big story. The books were published in the early 50s when they were sort of teenagers. Mm. So they were all big fans of the story as it was. So they want one big final film. They go, yeah, let's do Lord of the Rings. And then they start approaching directors. They start approaching the author Mm. and... The whole thing falls flat. I, ooh, something smells really off with this. It's mm-hmm. like you've, I think you've you've come out with a crazy fact at the end to try and end on a high. You had the nerve to call my squirrel fact what? ridiculous. There are no talking animals in this. They might have been in the film. So how did Tolkien get wind of it? Did they not go to him directly before I'm, they even had the idea? Hey, Tolkien, we're the Beatles. Well, I'm guessing if he hasn't sold the rights, United Artists will go to him saying, can we have the rights to your book? We're thinking about making a film. Mm. He'll go, who's going to be in it? And they'll go, John Lennon playing Gollum. And he goes, oh, I think I'll hold on to these rights. Thank you very much. <laughs> thing is as well... The height discrepancy between the four of them and like they're playing the hobbits, playing Gandalf. Who are the other characters going to be? This, Who was going to be Merry and Pippin? I don't think. Who it was got, Aragorn? I don't think it got far enough to cast other people. And I don't. I think you're overestimating how much the the Beatles in 1969 would have cared about the realistic <laughs> <laughs> doing the best for the, when, the original material. When did the Beatles start their like psychedelic post India post drug? I phase? think that must be the mid 60s. Mm. Um, I mean the only lasted another year they broke up in 1970 really yeah something is just really off with this it's just again but every time i trust my gut it's usually wrong <laughs> it's just again the rights issues really sticking with us is something that i think you put a couple of facts in there about lord of the rings it's oh there you go we've learned we've learned some fun things mm. and then you've just clobbered this together <laughs> I think I'm, I think I might be ready to guess now. Okay, what do you think about think, the the Beatles starring in The Lord of the Rings? I, ooh, I think this is BS. Okay, final answer. Yeah, that entire story uh-huh. is true. <laughs> oh, damn it! Yeah, you mean you can't see John Lennon playing Gollum? That's ridiculous. Yeah, it went. 
almost almost went to getting made but alas we were never we were never given the Beatles version of the Lord of the Rings just to follow this up there is a quote from Tolkien which might go some way to explain why this is it full of expletives (laughs) (laughs) why this didn't get made he wrote in a letter that in a house three doors away dwells a member of a group of young men who are aiming to turn themselves into a Beatle group (laughs) the noise is indescribable (laughs) So he lived near a rock band that were trying to kind of emulate the These Beatles. wannabe kids in the 60s. Yeah, and they're presumably sort of practising in the garage. And he, I, I can see talking as, as like the crusty old Dean. <laughs> He's like a few doors down. <laughs> Damn kids in the pop music. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and actually, there's a follow-up when I was reading about this. Um, I think Paul McCartney met Peter Jackson, who directed the films. Um, around about the time that they came out and said he's like really glad this film was never made because mm. Peter Jackson's was eventually made. So it's like, if this had gone and been I made, then... I feel they would have made the newer ones anyway and like... <laughs> to cover up what had happened in the and 60s. And I think this sounds like this Beatles version might have gone the way of... Have you heard of the Star Wars holiday special? Yes, I have. Have you seen it? I've seen clips of it I've on YouTube. I've seen the full thing. Oh, it's dear me. insane. Yeah. You're like, what was... George Lucas thing. <laughs> like if you can find the full video on YouTube, everybody, go watch Star Wars Holiday Special yeah. for them. It's a real trip, I tell you. <laughs> Have a few beers before it. <laughs> Just really get the experience. But I imagine the thing you've described from the Beatles, it mm. sounds like it would have been that kind of it would have been pretty crazy, trippy, crazy, yeah. trippy, yeah, nonsense. And they were going to make it a musical. I mean, there's a lot of Tom Bombadil songs in that book. But... <laughs> God, just what the audience is crying out for. We need more Tom Bombadil songs. Yeah, you can imagine sort of George Harrison duetting with in, the Balrog. Even when you've read read the books, there's like songs every couple of pages. Like yeah, Frodo sings about a forty five page song at one point. There's a about... lot of skipping pages when I read that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you would have loved it from like the language perspective things. Oh, it? yeah. What Tolkien did in terms of like philology and in, mm. like inventing languages and things was absolutely brilliant. But Frodo's songs, not so brilliant. Yeah. But anyway. Um, well done, Paul. Yeah. 4 Secured a victory and secured a, a draw overall. Draw for the season. So yeah. I think we're on. Season one was a draw. Season two was my victory. Yeah. Season three is a draw. So that means the next still, one has to be my victory. Still just ahead. Squeaking <sighs> ahead. No. Uh, what? Well, it's been a good a good season. It's been a good episode as well. What did mm. we learn? Ooh, we've learned poor Elmer McCurdy, the hapless criminal of the early 1900s. Yeah, who... the, the corpse that travelled America. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've got to see the world. Yeah. We learned that uh, Voltaire won the French lottery more than once. Exactly. And established himself that way. And uh, alas, we learned some facts about Mother Shipton's cave, but alas. We uh, did Mother Shipton. That feels was... like a lifetime ago. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, not true that it, the person who started it as a tourist attraction was accused of conspiracy. Right. That's our new Patreon goal. Send all of us to Mother Shipton's cave <laughs> to record a live episode at and some watch point, yeah. one of Paul's possessions calcify before his eyes. It doesn't happen before your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> like, how quick does this cave work? Oh, no. One day we'll put up on the Patreon a picture of me and you at Mother Shipton's cave. <laughs> It'll be like when we finally get to season four in about 340 years. <laughs> yeah. We'll take our space cars. I thought you were going to say we'll take on nine fans. With us. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. We'll meet, we'll meet the fans in Mother Shipton's cave. <laughs> well, yeah, it's been a good old episode to finish on this yes, one. We've had a, we've had a good run mm. this season, I think. And we promise 
We will be back at some point. We're aiming for Christmas special again. Yeah, so, that'll be happening. And then new season in the new year. Yeah. Now, the last time I promised a new season in the new year, it didn't come until like April. Yeah, I think we said in last year's Christmas special, we'll be back in January. And I think we turned up in, in the spring. <laughs> I, I, I would like, so I'm going to say we'll be back in the new year. Yeah. Then that leaves us leeway for any month. Yeah. Because technically every month of 2020 is the new year. BS. <laughs> <laughs>